Welcome to the Jacked and Happy Podcast. We have Christopher Healy on today, and it is one of the most rewarding episodes you will listen to if you're anything like me. I hate, and I don't say hate a lot, but I hate con artists, people scamming people. You're on Instagram. They're pretending to be other people, scamming people out of money. It's horrible. Well, this guy, this legend, talks about how he took down a fraud organization through the Homeland Security Department. It's phenomenal. We need more men like this guy. Uh, we don't just talk about this, but it's a very rewarding to talk about that, let me tell you. Uh, he's a great guy, family guy, endurance athlete. He's in the gym at 5 a.m., raising an awesome family, and um, host of the Indispensable Man podcast and book. So check him out. I hope you love the episode. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day. Welcome to Jacked and Happy. I'm Elliot Schwartz, whiskey lover, bacon eater, real estate investor, and a big kid at heart. I'm bringing you epic conversations with everyday people doing legendary things who are just as successful as they are happy. Let's freaking go. Christopher, welcome to Jacked and Happy. Dude, I'm so pumped to have you on. This guy's kind of a legend. I mean, federal agent, um, tactical missions here and overseas, spend some time on the Southwest border. And he's basically, he did what I think all of us would want to do, which is go after scammers from India. You literally, I mean, have had the most rewarding job in the world, which is like, but you know, getting the people who bug us all the time. <laughs> yeah. It was, pre- it was pretty fun. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was, I stumbled kind of bass backwards into it. Um, you know, I joined, um, Homeland Security as soon as it like stood up. And so, you know, I had to kind of wait for the government to the, the gears to come together to make that thing happen, uh, which took a couple of years. And then I went, um, got picked up, got sent down to the Southwest border. I grew up in New England, ended up in South Texas. And, and I listened to all of the, the advertising about, you know, come stop the next 9-11, you know, fight terrorism, whatever. I would have never guessed that like the way my career would kind of have progressed and ended would have been with me um, dealing with telefraud and like, you know, helping, you know, elderly victims of scams. Um, I just didn't see it going that way. I thought I was going to be, you know, stopping, uh, you know, the next, the next 9-11. And it just, it kind of, it went in a really different direction, but it was a fun and rewarding career for sure. Man, I dude, I had a buddy um, invest 15K in what he thought was like a solid investment and it was turned out to be a, a fraud. And I mean, it, it really hurt him and financially and like his well-being mentally like he was down and out man so it's important work i mean that's it's it's no joke dude so um talk to me a little bit about that though what how did you approach it how did you i mean what a freaking process it seems like (laughs) yeah so i kind of got into that so like to kind of give you the like the background give me the Um, give me the story I got so I got into to Homeland Security and I, I went to work at, at when it first opened up or the jobs first opened. Um, I, you know, I applied for Border Patrol, Customs and Border Protection. I applied for ICE, all these agencies that had either evolved after 9-11 or had been kind of reconstituted. Um, they were all hiring and there was this hiring freeze and then they they put out their job announcements and brought everybody in. And so I was like, whoever picks me up first, I just want to go wherever I can serve. And so I ended up getting hired on with ICE and they put me to work on the Southwest border. And so um, I started out doing that. I was dealing mostly where I was, it was mostly the Gulf cartel and the Zetas were on the other side of the border. And so I was doing a lot of work on human trafficking and narcotics trafficking. I worked on the DEA task force. I did all that stuff. And then I got picked up by our internal affairs 
agency for Department of Homeland Security. So I started working on the dirty and corrupt agents. So the Border Patrol agents and the customs officers who were working with the cartels. Whoa. And that, yeah, that was some fun work. And, uh, you know, we arrested sheriff's deputies and it was like you've seen the movie Training Day, like. You know, there's, there's, I have a lot of stories of crews that were law enforcement that were operating kind of like that on behalf of the cartels. And so wow. did that for a while, but I'm, I'm, you know, you can't, I don't know if this will be on, on YouTube, but I'm a blue eyed, you know, white skinned white boy. Like, <laughs> like I can't do a lot of undercover work in the Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> and so, uh, so I was always looking for a way to be a little bit more effective at my job. And, uh, you know, my Spanish is, is not very good. I speak law enforcement Spanish. I know Mano Cerive and, you know, <laughs> Firma Key and all that stuff. So I'm not much of a, like, uh, I, I'm not much of an asset as, as an undercover in a special agent position. So, I started getting into doing fraud work uh, because I was really good at the numbers. I'm a, I'm a spreadsheet guy. I, I'm good at, at following the money. And so one day I was the duty agent. I was in charge um, of all the incoming calls that would happen. And in a given week in the Rio Grande Valley, it's just a boatload. Um, if you watch the news, you see what's happening down there right now on the border. It's nuts. Mm. Um, it's it was less nuts when I was there, but you know by a magnitude of you know fifty percent, it's still crazy down there. It's still the wild west, and uh, and so I started getting these calls coming in from individuals who were. U.S. citizens, or not U.S. citizens, but they were residents. They were like H-1B visa holders, like guys from India who come over here to like work a tech job. And they were calling and they were saying, hey, uh, someone from Homeland Security just called me and told me that if I don't pay this money to them, I'm going to be deported. And, you know, they were just kind of like trying to check out and find out if this was legitimate. And, and this is the first I had heard of these these impersonation calls, these government impersonation calls. So I started getting these as a duty agent, and I asked my boss, I said, you mind if I run this to ground and see if I can, like, figure out what's going on here? And my initial concern was that we had a dirty, like, CIS agent. agent. Yeah, yeah, somebody who worked for the government had, like, a list of visa holders and was just calling and, like, trying to t trying to get money out of them. And when I kind of scratched the surface and started looking into it, what I found was this like vast and complex conspiracy that involved call centers in India, um, illegal immigrants from India in the U.S. who were laundering the proceeds, um, you know, what we call general purpose reloadable cards, those like green dot or vanilla cards, those gift cards you buy and stick in people's stockings at Christmas. And it was this massive $300 million scam. And then oh, I just... Wow. I just kind of stumbled into it. And over the, the next seven years, I investigated this and we ended up indicting over 61 people in India and the U.S. Um, ended up arresting like 24 of the subjects in the U.S. All the people we indicted in India are still at large. The Indian government won't turn them over. Um, but I ended up traveling all the way to Singapore to arrest the kingpin, the guy who was the head of the organization. Uh, put cuffs on him, dragged him back to the States. He's doing 20 years now. Holy um, cow. We did dude. like a massive takedown of 20 plus individuals across eight states on the same day. So it was it was a seven-year-long kind of just don't give up, just keep digging, keep scratching the surface, find the right people to work with, build a team that's interested in this, find some other guys who give a shit and dig in. And uh, and it taught me tons. I mean, I wrote mm. – I wrote search warrants for over 200 email accounts. <laughs> like, I was like, I mean, I just went all in on this thing. And at the end of the day, we're still we're still locking people up. A couple of guys, uh, my colleagues, when I retired and I left, a couple of my colleagues kept moving the ball forward. Um, there's been another 13 or 14 people arrested um, on a spinoff case. They just indicted another guy last week. Um, and so we've just kind of continued to chip away at this for the last decade now. And uh, And it all began with me just getting curious about, you know, 
you know, if people are scamming people over the phone, is there something we can do about this? And so if you, you know, if you've got a curious mind and you have a, um, a certain amount of tenacity, you can get almost anything done. And that was kind of my experience. So, yeah. That's some wise words, man. And you can translate that to anything. Did you get any resistance when you got curious around it? Were they like, ah, don't really chase this? Or were they like, okay, yeah, go, go check this out. Constantly. <laughs> Constantly. Pushback. Push yeah. yeah. So the federal government has a real interest. And this is some inside baseball here. So, and I know you'll appreciate this. The, the, yeah. the, the federal government has an interest on the law enforcement side in doing things that get splashy headlines and get um, where they can seize money or seize assets. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in going after narcotics traffickers for good reason obviously fentanyl is killing a hundred thousand people a year um mm. you know human trafficking is just a, is a horrible thing if you've ever spent any time uh talking to victims of human trafficking or being around that um you know it's a terrible thing but these cases there weren't there wasn't money or assets to seize now when the dea works a case you know they work a, a big case on a you know a cartel you know, somebody's living in Arizona who works for one of the cartels and they seize all of, they seize his house and they seize his cars and they seize, you know, millions of dollars, racehorses, however they're laundering the proceeds, right? So there's, the government can take all of that and they can say, we did this case and this is how much money we saved you, the collective taxpayer, right? And that looks mm. good to the taxpayers. On my cases, the money disappears very quickly. It's called Hawala. And Hawala is the exchange of money without money actually moving hands. It's this kind of ancient trafficking money transfer, money laundering network um, that if you've ever watched season one of Homeland, they do a really good job of explaining Hawala in that. Mm. Um, it's, it's used in terror financing a lot because it's, it's a trust-based network between individuals in the U.S. and individuals typically in the Middle East or India or Pakistan. And so what we found was that this network was using Hawala to launder the, the proceeds of this scam. And so the money was working its way around to thousands of bank accounts. It was, you know, the individual who's the victim gets scammed. The money then, the person on the phone who's calling them then distributes that money through different methods to different people around the U.S. who kind of put it in thousands of different bank accounts. So we never got to seize a large amount of money. And so the federal government, it wasn't that there was pushback, it was just that there wasn't a lot of support to funding this sort of investigation because it didn't pay for itself. Mm. And, you know, drug trafficking uh, organizations, um, you know, there's a, there's a good reason to go after them from a, a ethical and moral perspective, but also from the government's perspective, those cases fund themselves because when you seize assets, you can convert that into going after the next organization. For us, it was more about giving justice than any sort of financial compensation. The average age of my victim was 73 years old. And so wow. getting out there and giving a 73-year-old, my grandfather, my, my grandmother, my parents are getting to that age. They're in their late 60s now. Giving them some justice, some sense of justice, and you alluded to this earlier, when a victim gets a telephone call and they fall for one of these scams, it is absolutely no different from a psychological perspective than somebody getting a gun pointed at their chest and saying, give me your wallet, give me your watch. Mm -hmm. You feel victimized in the same way, psychologically, physiologically. You don't trust yourself anymore. You don't trust your decisions. It can right. lead to if you're an elderly person, and most of my victims, like I said, were 73, um, some were older, some were 80s, 90s. They lose their life savings, the inheritance that they promised their children. They now have to go and live with their kids because they don't have the means to take care of themselves. So it causes these generational issues. And to me, giving those people some sense of justice writing that wrong by putting someone in handcuffs and putting them in jail at, in some cases for 15 or 20 years 
that drove me every single day. So I didn't really give a shit if my if my boss wanted me to pursue these cases or not. Yeah. I was like, I was all in on pursuing them because the first time you talk to an elderly victim of one of these crimes and they're bearing their soul about what it's done to their psyche, what it's done to their relationship with their kids, what it's done to their sense of trust. Um, if it doesn't pull at your heartstrings, I don't know what does. Not, nothing in my career got me going bigger than crimes against children, crimes against the elderly. Mm. Yeah, because they, they can't defend themselves for the most part, you know? Right. What was it? Okay, I got to take this is kind of like a superficial question, but what was the kingpin like? Did it, was it a big mansion? Was it like the movies? Big mansion, guns, girls in the pool. Tell, talk to me about it. <laughs> yeah. Now I've and so, um, so when I worked in the Rio Grande Valley, when I worked uh, on the DA task force, we did we we took down a guy who was the um, he was kind of the nephew of the head of the Gulf Cartel, and he was living under an assumed identity in the United States. You can look this guy up. His name's uh, Junior Cardenas, um, and so. That was that. Yes, he was living in like a property in like Rio Hondo, Texas, and they had like giraffes and shit. It was like, I mean, like, and this guy got like stopped on like a traffic stop randomly by like the South Padre Island Police Department wow. for like failure to like signal or something. And there was something with his driver's license that made him say, we ought to figure out if this is who this guy really is. And it turns out he's this big kingpin. Wow. Yes, for that guy. But for the for the people who were behind the what everybody thinks of, they know of as the IRS scam. Mm hmm. It's not like that at all. This guy was actually, um, he, he, I arrested him in Singapore. And so he was living in Ahmedabad, India, which is a city in uh, Gujarat, which is like kind of north, I guess, northwest India. Um, and so he flew into Singapore to set up bank accounts there to launder the proceeds of this, uh, of this scam. So the money was flowing back to him. He wanted to invest it in crypto. You couldn't do that in India. So he was going to Singapore. So he flies into Singapore. We, had, we knew who he was. We'd identified him. We had what's known as an Interpol red notice. So we had this Interpol knew, if this guy pops up in any other country, you let me know. Well, he flies into Singapore. We get notified. Singapore police notify Interpol. Interpol notifies us. By the time we get notified, of course, this is like 13 hours fly, flying time away. It's on the other side of the world. So by the time we get notified, this guy's already getting on a plane to head back to India. He just kind of popped in, done some work there, and flew back. Mm. So they're not able to grab him and hold him. But they've got him on their radar now. They've got a picture of him. They've got his travel profile. And so we tell them, look, if he comes back in again, you don't even have to call us. We want him. Like, just hold him grab him we, we will go we will try to extradite him so that's exactly what happened he flew back in about six months later after he popped up on our radar and he flew back in what's interesting is we had sentenced everybody in the united states all the guys i'd arrested and so i think he he got in his head maybe i'm in the clear this case is over these people have been sentenced i can i can i'm free to travel around the, the world again he flies back into singapore after nothing happened the first time they pick him up at the airport they hold him it took us about, at that point, three to four months to get him extradited. So he was actually held. We worked with the Singapore government to hold him in place in the prison in Singapore. I flew in, and I actually got to travel and go into the prison in Singapore, which is a wild experience. I, like, um, We're talking about that. Yeah, so man. Keep, go, so, keep yeah. going. Keep going. So, yeah. So I, I traveled in there, and he's just like, it's yeah. I've been in a lot of jails. I've never been in a jail this quiet and orderly. Singapore is a really wild place. oh gosh, yeah. Like they have they're like, tough. They you, know, you tough. don't mess. You don't mess yeah. around in there. They're tough. So this guy, like, he barely speaks any English. He speaks Hindi mostly. Um, my partner and I, we we work our way through this kind of labyrinthine like jail system. We have to go through numerous sally ports. We get in there. We walk in, and we walk into this room, 
and there's all these like yellow squares, like one by one squares painted on the floor. And in the middle of one of these, surrounded by about 15 guards, like very serious looking people, dead quiet, is this one guy, my subject, sitting like, you know, crisscross applesauce, like <laughs> just like just sitting there, like not a peep. And we walk in, you know, this guy with like, you know, four or five stars on his epaulets. He's like clearly the warden. He comes up, shakes our hand, whatever. We give him the paperwork. We do the whole thing, the photo op thing. We get this guy in the car and he's dead silent. As soon as we break free of the prison, we get out and we're going to the airport. We're going to put him on a plane and extradite him to the U.S. right away. He turns to my partner, who's uh, we, we brought a guy with us who's a Hindi speaker, so he's a, an Indian guy, and he's, he turns to him. He says in Hindi, he says, "What took you so long?" And, and my partner starts cracking up, and he translated for us, and we started laughing because it had been about four four months in Singapore prison, and that was enough. He was ready to come to the U.S. Even though he knew he was facing 20 years in the U.S., he was like, like get me out of hell. Singapore. This, this is, hell. is hell. Yeah. You know, like, what, what makes it so strict? What just Do they beat them? Are they, like, not beating them? What, what's it like? So when I was a kid, and I don't know if I'm a little bit older than you, but there was a um, – there was a kid when I was growing up who kind of famously like he he was living. There's a lot of expats who live in Singapore. So there's a lot of like um, American kids there, Australian kids, like because there's a lot of like major corporations, oil and gas and stuff headquartered there. And this kid was like doing crap that kids, high school kids do. It was like vandalized a car, or, you know, did something. And the Singapore police grabbed him and they caned him. He got like sentenced to like 20, uh, it was like a public caning. He got like whipped with like a bamboo stick like 20 or 25 times in front of a crowd. That's Singapore justice. And I remember this because I, I remember being like about his age when this happened. And I think Clinton was president. And there was this whole like exchange about trying to stop it. And they did it. They were like, nope, kid broke our law. He's getting caned. And uh, and so Singapore has like if you import drugs into Singapore, you will be you will be uh, hung. They will like straight up hang you. Uh, I mean, it's like no screwing around. Like I don't I don't chew tobacco. One of my partners uh, that I flew in there with 16 hour flight. So he's you know, he's got like several cans of skull. He's like chewing, you know, trying to stay awake and everything. We show up, there's signs all over the airport that, that makes it illegal to import tobacco products. Uh, so he's like, what do I do here? I'm like, well, there's an amd amnesty bin right over there. Because like straight up, they will like throw you in jail for bringing like skull into the country. So it's a very, very strict place. But it is the cleanest city I've ever been in. It's like the most, mm -hmm. it's an island. It's like 5 million people and it's an island. And it is spotless and beautiful and gorgeous and extremely wealthy. But it is run very tightly. And so this guy, uh, I think got to experience a lot of that on the inside about, about how strict they take things. That is wild. Yeah. I highly really? recommend it. It's a great place to visit. If you ever, if you ever get a wild hair and decide, I want to see, uh, I want to see the jewel of Southeast Asia. I would, I would highly recommend you go. But, it's super uh, modern, right? The buildings and everything. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. If you've seen crazy rich Asians, it's that mm -hmm. we actually, my team, um, we had a couple of days there before we, we, arrested our guy and, and brought him back we had to kind of uh enter we had to do all the go to the embassy and interface with the singapore police force and do all that stuff and uh and so we got to go up in that hotel that's at the end of crazy rich asians where they're like up on this like it's like three hotels with like almost looks like a cruise ship parked at the top of it yeah and it's insane um so yeah it's it's exactly like that movie <laughs> that's cool yeah so talk to me what was it like to get to the end of a seven-year investigation and arrest all these people and get the head guy what, what did it feel like was it incredible was it rewarding i'm sure you got accolades i'm sure it was at that point like a really cool deal 
um, on your resume. So tell me about it. Was it, how did you feel? It, it's funny. Like I, I had this conversation actually with some guys, um, just this weekend, I was talking about like what motivates me. And, um, I think there's a, I think you can say there's two types of people and, and I'm, I'm just blatantly ripping this off from another podcast, but there's, there's two types of people. There's thrill of victory people and agony of defeat people. Mm. And I think that this podcast is right. They ask all their guests, you know, what, which of the two they are. And I think it's, it's honest, it's honestly a truth that everybody can fall into one of those categories. I am very much an agony of defeat guy. I am purely motivated in, in the same way a Michael Jordan or Tom Brady is motivated by just the very idea that someone might be better than me just fuels me. And so I, the, the thought that one of these guys could outsmart me and, and escape um, mm. from me was, was what fueled me more than anything. Uh, so yeah, I got a ton of awards for this and like got some accolades and I've got some stuff on my, my bookshelf and everything. It's really cool. They're neat to look at, but, um, I was always motivated by who's next. <laughs> like, you know, there's still some, there's still some asshole out there who needs to get some bracelets. So like, let's go. Yeah. Like we got time to have a couple of drinks and, and, and celebrate this one. But, um, you know, it's like Tom Brady, uh, has kind of famously said like his favorite ring is the next one. Mm-hmm. And for 23 years of his career, that's what motivated him. And he was in, you know, he, he won seven rings and appeared in 10 Super Bowls in 23 years. It's an ins- just insanity. Wild. And he was always motivated by what's next. Michael Jordan was always motivated by the idea that somebody somewhere might be practicing when he's not. Or somebody somewhere might have said something about him, that he's not the greatest of all time. So he's like constantly motivated. Any slight, any billboard material, anything mm. that you can put out there to motivate you motivates guys like that. That's how I felt in my career. I was not, I was not a thrill of victory guy. I didn't much care about, about winning. I just hated to lose. And I hated the idea that some asshole in a call center in India was taking advantage of my grandfather or someone else's grandfather. And if I'm not working to stop him right now, how many, how many people are getting scammed every minute that I'm not going after him? That was always my attitude. So, um, yeah, I didn't, and maybe that's not healthy, but (laughs) But I didn't no. have I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of uh, appreciation for the awards. It was like great, cool. What's next? Um, yeah, no. Yeah, that, that takes emotional intelligence. I mean, because it's hard to do things when no one's looking, and you had to do probably the majority of your work with no one looking, getting pushed back. Why are we doing this? Justifying, you know, the resources and all that. So to know what really is keeping you up and keeping this alive and the fire going and getting you to push back on your, you know, your management and superiors. And we need to do this. This is why we're gaining traction. You know, I'm sure you had all the conversations around that. So yeah, that was hard. Yeah, that was hard because that we, we went, I mean, it was a seven year investigation, but, but the first half of that was building to the arrests. And so I spent the better part of 38 months or so assuring my assuring my management no this is going to happen we're going we're writing a, a huge indictment it's an, it was an 81 page indictment it's it's you know publicly available if anyone wants to look it up but it it detailed the entire conspiracy and i had to constantly mm. justify the hours that i was spending on this because there was no tangible there was nothing to hold i hadn't seized any assets i hadn't put anybody in handcuffs my management had to trust that i was going to finish this thing and bring it across the finish line i wasn't spending three years of my life uh, three years of government assets of taxpayer assets chasing a bro dream. your government i mean your superiors yeah. had to trust you and you had to trust yourself that exactly. you could pull this through yeah i mean that's big too did you ever doubt like you could actually do this or was there ever 
you know, like the, oh, what am I doing? Um, am, am I going to pull this off? I did a lot of things in this investigation that I had never done before. And I think there's some, there's good and bad to that, right? Like mm -hmm. I was at a point in my career and I partnered up with guys who were at a point in their career where we were all at the beginning of this thing, two, three years into a career where, you know, we'd been through our training, we'd done all of that, but no one had taken on a case this big before. Most of us hadn't yeah. really done much more than like simple kind of like, you know, by the book kind of cases that take two, three, four months. And so something like this was a lot to bite off, but there is some, you know, you have a certain amount of trust and arrogance when you haven't done something before and you don't know how hard it's going to be. And so there's there's a benefit to that, I suppose, in recognizing that, yeah, this is going to be an undertaking, but I'm up for it because I don't know how much this is going to suck. It's like Iron Man. Like I did, I've I raced Iron Man's around that same time. And that was kind of the attitude was like, you know, just one bite at a time. That's how you finish a 140.6 mile race. It's how you finish a seven year mm -hmm. investigation. And even if you can't see the finish line, putting one foot in front of the other and recognizing and knowing and being able to compartmentalize and recognize that the work that I'm doing today is going to lead to that eventual, that eventual victory. Yeah. Nick Saban talks about this. Uh, Bill Belichick talks about this. They call it process thinking. And process thinking is, Nick Saban tells his guys, never look at the scoreboard, ever, ever, ever. Focus on the seven seconds in front of you because that's what you control. You control this play, this single play. You do not control, you know, where you are in the in the rankings. You don't control ultimately whether you win or lose the game. But if you can win every second second seven second play, mm. the process takes care of itself. So think of it in those terms. Think of the process, not the outcome. If you focus on the process, the outcome will be achieved. And that was where I tried to keep my head was like this search warrant here isn't going to be the thing that draws the whole case together. But this search warrant leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. I, I grab this information and I leverage this information this way. I interview this guy and, and yada, 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 where, where it became a balancing act and I had to be a much better politician than I, than I truly am was convincing my superiors that, you know, the thousands of dollars I was spending traveling around the country, interviewing victims and interviewing witnesses and, you know, a, a PD somewhere in Alabama or Illinois arrested a runner and I got to go out there and fly and shake him down and see if he can give me some info that might give me that one piece of information that leads mm. me to the next thing. And that domino falls and it keeps the case going. That's where it got, it got challenging. But, you know, I'm very fortunate that, uh, that I convinced a couple of people in my immediate chain of command that this was a value and they, they did a good job of helping me convince people further up the chain. Mm. And then once you get DOJ involved, once you get the Department of Justice to say, no, we're investing in this case, we believe in it, it kind of it kind of shuts your supervisors up. So it was, uh, I don't know, they, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it. They made a whole podcast about this called Scam Likely. That was a um, no, was a pretty big hit last year. Yeah, so yeah, write that down. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to 100% listen to that because yeah, I'm, so, dude, this, this conversation is blowing my mind. Campside Media. Um, so this is a wild story too. A buddy of mine I went to college with. I was a uh, college newspaper. I was I worked for my college newspaper. And a buddy of mine um, who was on the Ed board with me is a guy named Matt Share, and he went to work for um, worked for Smithsonian. He worked for the New York Times. He, he was a pretty uh, pretty big time like long form journalist. He started a production company called Campside Media that makes true crime podcasts. And, uh, and you know I sent him when the indictment came down. I was like, hey Matt. I was like. Nobody's really covering this. It, you know, here's a tip for you. And I sent him like the, a copy of the indictment. He was like, he could not believe it. He was reading. He's like, holy smokes, I'm going to make a podcast about this. And sure enough, a few a few years later, he convinced the Department of Justice um, to allow them to make a, a serial podcast about it. And they turned it into 
it was a top 10 Apple podcast last year. And, uh, wow. and it, it tells the whole story. So if your listeners are intrigued by this, they want to know how we caught these guys. Tells the whole story. Oh, this is huge. I'm, <laughs> I'm fired up. I'm fired yeah, up. Man. about this. I'm just getting so much out of this because it's so relatable to me in my journey and taking on something that I don't know how to do. And what are my next steps? How do I stay focused? How do I stay in action without getting overwhelmed? Um, there's so much, I think a lot of people are in that same boat, you know, maybe not in law enforcement, but in entrepreneurship or trying to land a big deal. If you're in sales or managing a big team, then you're a new manager. I mean, there's so much that's relatable to, to the Nick Saban mentality that, it, I needed this conversation today, man. This is really good. Thank you. Getting fired Got up it. again. Let's go. I love it. Getting jacked and happy. <laughs> so, yeah, man. Um, take it on the personal side. Um, I met this guy, Christopher, this amazing man, and he's adopted two kids. Um, He's got a huge heart. It's funny because you're a badass and you take down criminals and you're, you know, yes, there's people who need to be put in some cut and some, uh, what do you call them? Um, bracelets. bracelets, some bracelets, you know, it's a little badass. We're out shooting guns, but he has this huge heart of gold and he takes care of his family. He loves his family so much. And you took on um, adopting two kids and you're telling me the process around that. And what drives you? Like what, what is your definition of happiness? Oof. Um, Happiness is seeing my kids be successful, man. I mean, that to me is just uh, that that just fires me up. Um, so you, you you mentioned adoption. Like, I think what's funny is is I'm a guy who likes to take on big kind of gnarly projects, and um, and I and I didn't know that necessarily about myself until I really started doing it. And uh, mm. and so this case was one of them. Um, you know, racing endurance events, Ironman, ultra marathon. Those are big gnarly projects. It takes months to train for and do one of those. And adoption is maybe the biggest project I've ever taken on. And so, um, yeah, both of our girls are, um, both have special needs. We adopted both of them from China, um, for a real wild story. Um, our second adoption was in October of 2019. We were in China and, you know, you may recall there were some things happening in China at the time that we didn't know about until much later. Um, and so there were some fun stories I have about that, about being in China and feeling like something was kind of off and not realizing it until about three months later and recognizing exactly what was off. But um, yeah, that, those, those projects, um, I mean, eight months, 10 months to, to, to get to the finish line, you know that every time that you get something in the mail from the State Department or from the Chinese government that says, hey, we need some more information, if you don't turn that around that day or the next day, that's a day or two days or three days. The little girl halfway around the world doesn't have a family. That's, mm. and, and that motivates me. You know, that idea that somebody else needs to be served and is waiting for me to do this. And if, and if I take my time, that's, that's time that she doesn't have a mom and dad. And so mm. that kept us going. We drove hard to get to our girls. And if we hadn't, um, my little girl, my, my older daughter, the 10-year-old, she was six at the time. She'd still be sitting there in China because international adoption has been shut down since um, – about January of 20, uh, 2020. Wow. And so, um, and so, yeah, that sort of stuff like that makes me, I mean, that's the definition of happiness for me is to be able to be in a position where, you know, my wife and I can take our kids to Disney world anytime we want to, we can provide for them everything that they need, whether that is, you know, 
life life changing surgery or ABA therapy or whatever it is that they need, we can provide for them. And that they were born into a world where they had zero expectation of having anything. They were born in the lowest rung possible of the ladder in a communist dictatorship, and they're living free lives of, you know, it, it, living with two entrepreneurs who absolutely take advantage of and love uh, the freedom that that offers. And they're, they're living a life that is a complete 180 from what they would have been living otherwise. That That is what happiness is to me, is to give that to my children. So yeah, I'm going to get all teared up here. <laughs> it's okay, man. Let it fly. Let yeah. it fly. What? Um, how old were they when you adopted them? So we adopted out of birth order. Um, our first, our youngest, we got uh, in 2017. She was three years old. And our second, uh, who's our older daughter, we went back for two years later and she was six, six and a half. So we missed out on a lot of the the baby, baby time, uh, especially with our, our older daughter. But our younger daughter, um, she was three, but for all intents and purposes, she looked like an 18 month old. She had the muscle tone of an 18 month. She's still very much undersized for her age. She's nine now. So, um, you know, so we we still got some of that baby uh, in her because she was just so underdeveloped. Uh, and a lot of that is just they're malnourished. They just don't have the resources. They're living in both our girls were living in foster homes, which is a much better situation than being in an, uh, an, an orphanage. But they still uh, they just don't allocate any resources to their wellness, to their, you know, to their health and, and welfare. It's just kind of like. You know, they, they rely on um, a lot of non-governmental organizations and a lot of charities to, to keep those uh, those foster homes functioning. So, uh, yeah, they were young. And, uh, and fortunately, we got to them when we did. That's some, that's some, do, I'm just curious with that age, do they remember any hardships or is there trauma that comes up for them that has to be addressed or are they just freaking happy to be here in, in a good environment now? I mean, what is what does that look like? Our so our youngest, um, she's on. She has a very unique and rare um, genetic condition that kind of presents itself similar to autism. But she's nonverbal. She doesn't, and and she's very. She's just a happy-go-lucky. We kind of call her our chief morale officer around here. She just keeps <laughs> she keeps the vibes high, right? She's yeah. just like a happy little human. Yeah. Um, so you know, we don't really know. I don't think that she has a lot of recollection of that. If she has any trauma from that, it's repressed. But she was just very quiet. She didn't speak. Uh, they thought she was deaf in her foster home. She's not. She just is nonverbal. Um, and she just is, you know, she's very much the, she's a sensory seeker. She just, she, every morning she wakes up and it's the best day she's ever had. And, and so she, like I said, she keeps the vibes high. My older daughter, um, very intelligent, very bright, very neurotypical. She has a physical disability. She has, um, uh, cerebral palsy. So she doesn't walk. She's not ambulatory, but she remembers everything about being in China. She remembers wow. being bullied for, um, for not being able to walk. She remembers being treated certain ways. And so there's some things that I'm sure down the road we're going to have to address. Um, the good news is you know, my wife has a lot of training. She's trauma-informed. She has a degree in in, in that. Oh, wow. uh, she works a lot in that, in, in the job that she does, coaching others and consulting with others. She has a somatic therapist that she works with. So we're, we're probably better prepared than most to deal with that as she gets older. And we, we encourage those conversations and we talk about it to the extent that we can. But, um, I'll tell you this: she was very, very keen to learn English and drop Chinese entirely, and really? I think that's a, that's a trauma response. Yeah, like yeah, I don't. She, yeah, I, I don't yeah, want anything to do with that. She's still yeah. if I if I tried to if I played something in Chinese, she would understand it and she would tell me, "Baba, don't I don't want to hear that." So she has a very like tr 
the actual Chinese language is triggering for her. Interesting. Was it tough to build? Like, how is it to build trust and the sense of family with kids that are a little bit older and they're coming from another place? I mean, now you guys are amazing and in sync and going to Disneyland and having the. I mean, I see you at the pool and they're just chilling in the pool, having the time of their life, you know, and was it hard to build that up into a family feeling or just, just takes patience. Tell me about that because that's, I feel like that would be a really interesting process. Yeah, it does take patience. And that is a, so for our, our younger daughter, I mean, we were kind of spoiled. We, we got this little girl who, um, you know, our first adoption, she didn't, she was just cuddly and sweet and like, didn't, you know, didn't, yeah, I'll go with you guys. You have food. Great. You know, like we're cool. She just like, <laughs> bonded, cool. like we bonded very quickly. She was just like, yeah, we're cool. I'll go with y'all. Um, yeah. really the only major meltdown she's ever had was, um, on the flight back from China to the U S which, um, I think she, she'd never been on a plane before and she woke up, she fell asleep before we took off, woke up at, you know, 30,000 feet, her eardrums were probably popping all that stuff. Had no idea where she was. It was dark. She's in a aluminum tube with like and she like kind of freaked out about it but um other than that she's been super chill and has been from the beginning it may as well have been like you know my wife gave birth to her it may as well have been our, our biological mm -hmm. child my my older daughter was more of a challenge because as you mentioned she was she was older she was six and a half years old she you know went to school she spoke a language she'd had foster parents for a number of years that she had bonded with and she had never really been around a man before and so she had her foster dad in china but you know again i'm a blue-eyed white boy like she'd never seen anything like me and we had to talk through google translate for the first about three or four months of our relationship and it was very challenging because she's very intelligent and she like tried me she pushed my buttons she bonded quickly with my wife but did not like me yeah and uh and if you see us now like she is much more of a daddy's girl than than a mama's girl but uh it took a lot of patience on my part the first like four or five months um i had to kind of play the 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 clown i had to kind of like you know oh baba fell down and uh, you know like the kind of <laughs> like the goofy yeah. idiot uh seemed yeah. to appeal to her and that's what allowed us to bond a little bit and honestly the pandemic probably did more for our our bonding than anything because it gave us the opportunity to basically be stuck together for mm. you know a couple of months uh early on texas didn't stay shut down for long but you know i remember we had her in a homeschool hybrid she came home um one day for spring break and she never went back to school and she barely spoke any english and she was just starting school and we, we found ourselves all of a sudden in a position where we've got a seven-year-old kindergartner who's already behind grade wise doesn't speak a lick of english or barely speaks any english is physically way behind and now we're facing a global pandemic where we don't know if she's going back to school so i have to figure out how to be an esl teacher i have to figure out how to be you know all of these things are a physical therapist all these things and uh, and that more than anything gave us the you know we kind of got to feel each other out and bond over that kind of collective experience that that was forced on us for the next couple of months and uh, and now i mean like she i mean I treasure these moments because I know she's going to be a teenager sooner than later, and I'm going to be uncool in, in <laughs> short order. But right yeah. now we have we have a we have a great bond. She's you know she's one of my closest little friends. Um, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan, and so she's like always like wanting to listen to Grateful Dead music and like you know like trying to like appeal to the things that I like. Uh, so yeah, we've got a great bond now, but it takes time and patience. That's cool, man. And you're one of the most disciplined people I know, and structured. 
I mean, I, I know the training for half Ironman. I've done a half Ironman. I can't, when I finished a half Ironman, I can't imagine going doubling that. That's <laughs> wild to me because I thought I was like, oh, I'm, I'm about to die. I can't imagine people doing double that. So what an accomplishment, but I imagine the discipline of showing up for her and, you know, never missing PT and never, you know, you're, I, I can imagine the structure in your life just really helps her feel that you're there for her and you care. I think there's a, um, yeah, I think there's a misconception a lot of people have about successful people that, mm -hmm. you know, people are fortunate or lucky or they fell bass backwards into it. And, and that does happen, right? There are people who get, you know, they, they get blessed with some like talent or some height or some physical ability or something that just makes it more likely they're going to be successful in a, in a field that pays well. But for the vast majority of people who become successful and however you define success, whether that's financially or just general happiness uh, or just pleased with their job, but you become successful by showing up every single day and taking quality at bats. And that's it. I mean, like you don't become good at as a baseball player, unless you love the game of baseball, unless you come in and you do the work that isn't what's happening on the field during the game, unless you're sitting there and you're hitting off a tee and you're studying film and you're taking ground balls and you're, you have to love the game to become good at it. And it would be unreasonable for you to be good at it after just going and showing up to a beer league softball game a couple times a week. Right? So there's, that's the difference. And I think people discount that they discount the power of discipline. And there's so much power in discipline. There's so much power in just showing up and doing the work while someone else is hitting snooze. You get so much further ahead by just doing the work, by showing up time and time again and finding joy from that, finding joy in the process. We talked about that earlier, finding joy in the process of getting 1% better. There's a great book um, that you may have heard of. It's called Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? And it's about this um, the British like I don't even know what it's called, the rowing team, the, the British rowing team in like the 2000 Olympics. They hadn't won like a medal in like 50 years. And so they hired a new coach and the new coach basically told them, for every decision that you make, I want you to ask yourself one question. Will it make the boat go faster? And so are you going to go out on Friday night and have some beers? Great. Will it make the boat go faster? Are you going to sleep in and hit snooze instead of getting mm. up and training? Will it make the boat go faster? And once he got his team to start thinking about, will it make the boat go faster? Will this make me 1% better? Sure enough, they started to get 1% better. And then they got addicted to that, 1% better and 1% better. And if you filter everything through that question, whatever that question is in your life, will it make the boat go faster is a great way to frame things. And that's how you become disciplined. You start thinking about it in terms of, I'm not there yet, but if I fall in love with the process, the results will come. Oh, and so you know. Good. It's how it happens, man. You, nobody, very few people are overnight successes. My wife and I, it took us 10 years in the health and fitness space to become overnight successes. We just kept showing up. Yeah, it's, that is true. And it, it can, comparison to people's stories can be so damning for people um, because they don't know the struggle that went behind the scenes. And no one, I, I truly believe no one's an overnight success. No. I truly believe that. Uh, you're putting in work, you have life experiences, you're doing, you're going through hardships that people don't see, even if you're not promoting it and you're promoting it as, you know, everything's great all the time. You put in the work somewhere to have those skills that you, tra that translated over to the thing you're doing now. And I, uh, I really believe that to be true. 100%. Yeah. It, it life doesn't happen. Um, you know, by accident, it happens by design and, it, and, and discipline mm. is how you design the life that you want. It, it takes a lot of humility too. For me, 
I'm a very competitive person, much like yourself. I don't like to lose at all, ever. Ask my wife, game night. It's not fun with me, bro. <laughs> no, me either. <laughs> night fun. Not fun at all. But it's been uh, a huge learning curve for me to learn new skills. And it takes a lot of humility to show up when you suck at stuff. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And yeah. there's, there's uh, you know, you want to get better. And it, it takes something to show up every day. But also on top of that, it takes something for me anyway with my ego and wanting to be good at things to show up and suck and learn and to ask dumb questions and to feel dumb and to feel, you know, God, I'm behind the ball on this. But um, I'm really enjoying being dumb at stuff Yeah, now, you know? It's great. Yeah. And it's the only way to – I think the more adaptive you are and the better mindset you can have around sucking at stuff is – that's what I see at really successful people. They're willing just to jump out and try new things and not know how to do it at, and and network and get with the right people. And um, yeah, I commend you for your attitude and your mindset around all these things that you've done in your life and continue to do. I think you're a much uh, much more humility and, and humble person than than most and um, act, and tenacious. I think those are two great things to have, but I just love your insights on how to succeed and how to how to really drive performance, man. It's really cool. It's it. Just show up. And, and, and people will tell you, um, you know, there's, there's another great, I like, I, I like to, I'm not the smartest guy, but I like to read books by smarter people than me. And so it's a great <laughs> book called the gap and the gain, which you may have heard of, but it's, it, it's the idea that like most people measure themselves by the, the gap between themselves and someone else. Exactly what mm. you said. Like what you're not seeing is everything that all oh, the struggle it took them to get there. So your better perspective is to measure yourself between the gap of where you are today versus where you were a week ago or a month ago or a year ago. And if you start to do that, you start to see how much you've gained. And then if you're looking at that, you have that gain mindset instead of that gap mindset, it makes it so much easier to take that next step because you see how many steps you've taken. Mm. Stop looking at the people at the top of the mountain, except to be inspired by them, but then start taking the steps to get up the mountain yourself. Don't measure yourself between where you are and where they are, because I guarantee you, they're not thinking about where you are, right? They're thinking about how they get even further up in the next step. So be, be focused on that. I love that. Man, time flies. I want to keep going, dude. I'll have to have <laughs> you back on because I, right on. You're, you're fascinating. And I love, I love your mindset around life and your family and what, what it takes to succeed. I think you, you, you dropped a lot of wisdom today. I think people are going to get a lot out of this, man. I appreciate right you on. hopping on and taking the time. Thanks for having me. Of course, brother.